trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm glad you could join me today. Come and find courage and camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers as you embrace, well, the reason you were born. Come on, there's a role you have to play. I invite you to come and join us and find out what your contribution to the greater cause of freedom is to be. Our program is brought to you each weekday at this time by great sponsors like HSLAmmo.com as well as by... uh, pure-light.com and MonticelloCollege.org. I'm going to revisit what uh, for a lot of people is kind of a painful part of American history and this would be what happened on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. Now, I'm pretty skeptical when the when the political class starts talking and their, their uh, media enablers, their narrative managers start talking about, well, this was the worst attack on the U.S. since the Civil War. It was, you know, this was an attempt to overthrow the government and, you know, basically lining things up to where we need to weaponize the entire might of the government against anyone who dares question either the legitimacy of the 2020 election or just simply whatever it is we're trying to ram down their throats at this particular moment. Now, the crazy thing is that you could probably find some people who I think would be legit radicals that uh, would stand in opposition to both of those things. However, <laughs> you'll also find a lot of uh, fairly down-to-earth people. I, by the way, I would include myself in this, in this uh, category. People who nonetheless see what's happening and don't accept the official narrative because there are just things that don't add up. And, of course, the harder the media beat the drums, oh, it was an insurrection. I mean, there's 400 people, as I understand it, who have been arrested and charged. Many of them are languishing in solitary confinement. In the meantime, you know, people who participated in last year's uh, riots and and uh, arson and looting and all of the beatings and even attempted murders and sometimes actual murders, it's rare to see any of them being held in custody. I mean, there's a pretty well-organized legal organization that gets them bailed out quickly, but the charges always seem minimal. They seem to be dropped. Definitely kind of a a two-tier standard of justice here. But the kicker for me has been, from the beginning, um, I didn't watch the the footage, you know, without ceasing. I mean, I, I took breaks from it, but it was very clear that some of the people who first breached the Capitol or who forced their way in we're not just your average, you know, Grandma Maga who was there waving a flag and and uh, went to hear Trump speak. In fact, it's pretty clear there were people there who uh, were dressing in uh, patriotic drag. You know, they were they were putting on you know stuff that would make them look like Trump supporters, but they behaved as a very well trained and uh, well practiced team. I don't know a nice way to say this, so I'm just going to tell you, they uh, they had their stuff wired tight. And that has raised some questions. Now, the media doesn't question this. That's a, that's a conspiracy theory. You think Antifa did this? Well, I think it may be even worse than that. 
I think there may have been some Antifa types or Antifa sympathizers who were part of that, you know, professional agitators for whom this was no big deal. But the thing that is coming out now that actually makes more sense, and and it's uh, raising a lot of questions, is what was the role of the FBI and specifically its uh, confidential informants and agents provocateur in the January 6th Capitol fracas? Notice I'm not calling it an insurrection. I haven't believed it was an insurrection from the beginning. And I, I don't mean to be indelicate when I say this, but if it was a legit insurrection, like someone was really trying to topple the government and take power, the people who were forcing their way into that building wouldn't have been just, you know, forcing their way in unarmed. They would have been shooting their way in and they would have been dragging Congress people out and likely murdering them in the streets. That is scary stuff, but it's not even close to what happened or what was shaping up to happen. In fact, the narrative, if you recall, about uh, police officer, Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick, well, he was killed by the rioters. The Trump rioters killed this police officer. And that's the narrative that the White House ran with. That's the narrative that, uh, you know, the media has run with over and over, except it's false. He died of a stroke. He died of natural causes a couple of days after. Even his family admits this. So why put that false narrative out there? I mean, I, I can only conclude it's probably for the sake of controlling people. We've got we've to demonize people, make them sound like why this is, this is the same as if ISIS or Al-Qaeda was trying to storm our capital and take over and, you know, subvert our democracy. Sounds familiar, right? Now, here's the thing that gets me. The FBI has a reputation and a pretty good track record of saving us from monsters it creates. In other words, uh, you remember hearing a little bit about there was a plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan? Remember that? The militia was going to go and kidnap her, and oh my goodness, they had it all planned out. And again, now, you wait a little bit, you don't jump on the bandwagon quite so quick, and just do your diligence and watch. Now information comes out, yeah, actually, that was uh, FBI informants steering people towards this is what we ought to do. In other words, it wasn't an organic idea that some militia guys in Michigan thought up. It was a plan that was floated by FBI agents provocateur and their, uh, their confidential informants. Let's do something. Let's do something about this. Because of uh, my proximity to the Bundy family, and particularly Ammon, um, I've learned a lot about uh, what happened at uh, the Malheur Wildlife Refuge. The crazy stuff that happened there, almost without exception, could be traced back to government informants there to stir people up. Come on, everybody, let's get out here and target practice. It's some pretty sophisticated stuff. I'm going to share a couple of things with you here. And, and uh, you know, you don't have to believe this. I mean, it, I understand. For some people, this is going to sound like conspiracy theory. To me, it's just more reasons why you can't trust people who are trying to consolidate power. They will do or say whatever it takes. They're enablers in the mainstream press. They're narrative managers. Same thing. They're trying to misdirect. They're trying to convince us this is what it is. You say the lie often enough and people will believe it. I've got an article here from J.B. Shirk. This is from the American Thinker. The FBI's role in the January 6th Capitol fracas is absolutely disgusting. 
In fact, he says, do you remember how conservatives went out of their way to separate rank-and-file FBI agents from the corrupt actions of people like James Comey, Andrew McCabe, Bill Priestap, James Baker, James Rabicki, Peter Stroke, Lisa Page, and others, as more evidence came to light that the top brass at the Bureau had been working to create an insurance policy that could be used to overthrow President Trump? Writers and television pundits would always couch any criticism of the Bureau in some respectful language, like we're we're only talking about high-ranking officials here, not the FBI itself, which is filled with the best agents in the world who are always looking out for America. Well, J.B. Strunk says, uh, Shirk rather, says, I think we can dispense with the overly protective pleasantries at this point. In fact, he just comes right out and says, the FBI is a goon squad of un-American thugs who've taken the worst elements of East Germany's Stasi police state and Cosa Nostra's organized crime and turned them into a blueprint for exercising and keeping illegitimate power over their enemies. They aren't a law enforcement organization, and they certainly don't give a rat's rear end about justice. They're regime enforcers with badges. Now, if the stated reason for the FBI's inception was to pursue federal crimes that might otherwise be unenforced or overlooked in the interstate wilderness, separating lower local jurisdictions, well, J. Edgar Hoover wasted no time turning the Bureau into a personal domestic intelligence force capable of intimidating political enemies and insulating himself from potential removal through the use of blackmail. Before Jim Comey was secretly leaking to the press and using Hillary Clinton's Russia collusion dossier in an operation to take down President Trump, Mark Felt, the FBI's second-in-command at the time of the Watergate scandal and the anonymous Deep Throat who made Woodward and Bernstein famous, actually succeeded in secretly bringing down President Nixon. In this way, the FBI has at least as much experience overthrowing American governments as it does any enemy state. Now, we're going to come back to this in just a moment. But again, the overall question, this is the thing I'm just asking you to consider. I'm not insisting you believe this. What role, if any, did the FBI have in that January 6th debacle at the Capitol? And I know that there are some who would say, well, they were just trying to protect the country. I'm not so sure. There's an audio recording out there right now that seems to indicate they were actively placing assets in and around that protest seems like they kind of got the uh, outcome they were trying to get. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience. Please go to the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. There you will find a link to the article I'm sharing from theamericanthinker.com. The FBI's role in the January 6th Capitol fracas is absolutely disgusting. And I'm going to cut right to the chase here. I mean, look, you know about the Russia hoax. You know about uh, some of the different things the FBI has been up to. I Again, I saw firsthand as the Bundy trial unfolded, that the FBI was very willing to, uh, to withhold evidence, to, to falsify reports, to, to do whatever it took to get the outcome that they wanted, including escalating and, and, uh, and supporting the, the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management's escalation in uh, a rancher's unpaid grazing fees 
into sending a 200-man militarized task force there to provoke some kind of a violent reaction. And the scariest thing of all is they almost got it. It almost happened. But I want you to consider this. There's an expose in Revolver News, which is now detailing the FBI's probable infiltration of the January 6th voting rights protest and political rally in D.C. And again, according to the audio, there is now a pretty strong likelihood that undercover agents instigated and actively participated in the events at the Capitol that day. Now, Revolver went through all the available indictments filed against Americans for breaching the Capitol. They noted there were numerous unindicted co-conspirators, all playing various roles in the conspiracy. But interestingly interestingly enough, these uh, co-conspirators have neither been named nor charged. Yeah. So what Revolver tees up with its reporting, Tucker Carlson smashes onto the green with his blunt conclusion. And he says it means that in every, in potentially every single case, they were FBI operatives. So FBI operatives were organizing the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, according to government documents. In fact, I'm going to play a little clip for you from Tucker Carlson. Three questions about the January 6th riot that they'll never answer. I think he has something worth considering here. Give a listen and tell me what you think. Well, there's been an enormous amount of hyperventilating in Washington over a segment we did two nights ago in which we pointed out that there were pretty clearly a number of people in the crowd at the Capitol on January 6th who had been in previous contact with the FBI about what was going to happen that day. Some of them may have encouraged others at the scene to commit crimes. Now, if that happened, and we believe it did happen, it would not be out of character for the FBI. They've done things very much like that before. That is beyond dispute. But in this case, they are disputing it, not the FBI directly. They haven't said a word. But the obedient minions of the national security state who run the social media accounts of The New York Times and occupy the anchor desks at CNN, they became hysterical when we mentioned it. You can't say that, they screamed. That's not allowed. The geniuses at Twitter weighed in to inform us that the people we had described as agents of the FBI were, in fact, just FBI informants. So shut up. Hilarious. But we won't shut up, and we shouldn't. It could not be more obvious at this point that the government is, in fact, hiding something, probably quite a few things. So best to abandon theatrics and find out what they are hiding. That's our job. To many in corporate media who claim that we are spreading Russian disinformation, instead, please calmly answer these three questions. First, how many of the so-called insurrectionists on January 6th had a relationship with the FBI? How many of these FBI moles encouraged others that day to break the law at the Capitol? We haven't heard anyone answer these questions or even address them. If the answer is none, if none of the protesters were secretly working with the FBI that day, then we were wrong and we will apologize for it sincerely. We'll admit it immediately. But if the answer is not none, and we're pretty sure it isn't none, then people who claim otherwise are liars and hacks and should leave the public stage immediately because they have betrayed their readers and viewers. Two, if the Justice Department knew there were going to be protesters massing at the Capitol that day, and it's clear they did know, then why didn't they do anything to stop the riot? Why did police at the Capitol allow protesters to walk in, as video shows that they did? That doesn't make sense. What's going on here? Why is no one asking that question? Third and finally, why can't we see the tape for ourselves? 
The government is hiding more than 14,000 hours of video surveillance tape that shows exactly what did happen at the Capitol that day. Why are they hiding that? And why aren't news organizations demanding to see it? You'd hate to think that NBC News, for example, or Vox, or The Atlantic, or The Washington Post, or The Daily Beast, or The New York Times, or any of them, are in fact working to protect the regime at the expense of the public. But unfortunately, we are starting to conclude that. Please prove us wrong. Wow. I mean, look, they're just questions, but I think they are the kind of questions that could get to the bottom of of some of what's going on. And, you know, you don't have to put on a tinfoil hat. You don't have to be a wild-eyed conspiracy theorist to understand that, uh, yeah, the FBI has a long history of this kind of thing. I mean, look, I, I don't want to dredge up any painful memories here, but go back 26 years ago, the Oklahoma City bombing. More and more... The official version of that story just doesn't hold up. And it looks more and more like it was an undercover FBI sting meant to go after the militia movement, but it was a sting that got away from them and that uh, that actually went bad and ended up with 169 people dying. My point is simply this. If you have to create the threats that you are going out there and protecting the people from. That seems like a pretty pretty big conflict of interest. And I think what Revolver has done with their analysis of the Department of Justice's charging document shows that not just BLM and Antifa, but also FBI undercover agents were almost certainly up to no good on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. There's a lot of outside interlopers pretending to be Trump rally goers for the FBI to insist that the same MAGA crowd that's never once engaged in violence or property damage over the course of hundreds of similar events in the last five years, dressed in patriotic garb, draped in American flags, spontaneously turned a festive carnival-like party into a siege and rebellion against the United States. And it's especially tough to believe. When, like you heard Tucker talk about you, there's video footage that shows the cops waving protesters into the Capitol building. And when you cut through all the spin and when you cut through all the narrative, the fact remains one person died. One person was killed that day. And it was Ashley Babbitt shot to death at the hands of a still unidentified Capitol police officer. Man, I hate politics. I do. I just, I think it is such a poisonous, ugly thing because it really brings out the worst in people. And it seems the higher up you go in politics, the more sociopathic the people tend to be. I know I'm painting with a pretty broad brush here, and there are probably some good people. You know, Thomas Massey, I'm looking your direction. Uh, uh, Mike Lee, for the most part, I think he does a good job. There are others as well, but they're the exception. I don't know. Maybe this is the time where, where we really need to be clear on the difference between a politician and a statesman. I still think one of the best descriptions that you'll find in in terms of defining uh, a statesman as opposed to a politician is in Ezra Taft Benson's The Proper Role of Government. Statesmen are concerned with principle, which means popularity takes a back seat to making sure that correct principles are being upheld and observed and incorrect or distortions of principles are called out for what they are. Politicians only want to be popular. 
They only want to speak soft words into your ears and bring you milk and cookies when you've skinned your knee and make sure that you know that they are there for you. That's why they'll say anything they need to say in order to get elected. They'll do anything they need to do in order to keep the money flowing, to keep them in power. You can guess which one we have more of a surplus of in terms of either politicians or statesmen. But here's the kicker. The need for statesmen is very real, but it also happens outside the realm of politics. If you're a good teacher, if you're a good neighbor, a good parent, that's statesmanlike behavior. So don't underestimate yourself and don't count yourself out. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm going to push, I'm going to continue pushing a little bit today, and I I just will acknowledge right up front here, this is going to make people uncomfortable. I'm going to go some places where your comfort level may start to shift. My goal is not to make you angry and it's not to make you scared, but it's definitely to to get you to think about some things that maybe you haven't considered before. I have watched with a, a mixture of fascination and frustration ever since the, uh, well, ever since following 9-11, the passage of the Patriot Act, the passage of the Authorization for Military Force Act, the Iraq War, that was kind of an awakening for me because that was when I realized, you know, all the talk about how George Bush is going to be this amazing conservative president. Finally, we're going to have constitutional principles. And nope, nope. Once the conservatives had their hands on the levers of power, um, the neoconservatives particularly, who believe that uh, it is our duty to f- shape the world by force, pushed through things like the Patriot Act, pushed through the authorization for military force. That actually came in 2002. And then they'd milked it for all it's worth. And the U.S. has been waging forever wars all over the place. I know, they're very limited, right? It's not like, oh, we've got this massive mobilization and oh, every young man has signed up for the military. And No, it's, it's more in the form of drone strikes here and, you know, uh, um, occupation here. And, oh, look, we have advisors there. And um, there's, there's a lot of conflict going on. Now, I was happy to see that uh, there was some talk of repealing the 2002 AUMF, but as uh, Fiona Harrigan from Reason.com points out, that's still not going to be enough to end America's forever wars. This was an article published, uh, let's see, this was day before yesterday. So I, I didn't follow the news yesterday, I don't know, but the House was expected to vote yesterday on a bill introduced by Representative Barbara Lee in California, from California that would repeal the 2002 authorization for the use of military force, passed as the U.S. geared up for war against Saddam Hussein's regime. That 2002 AUMF authorizes the president to, quote, defend the national security of the United States against the continuing threat posed by Iraq using the U.S. armed forces as he deems to be necessary. Now, just a quick aside here. That's yet another undeclared act of war. We have not had a declared war since World War II. And I only offer this as just a point of interest. Isn't it curious that uh, conflicts like Vietnam, conflicts like uh, Korea, Panama, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, they're much more open-ended. 
the goal is much less clear when a war is undeclared. It's still killing people. It's still breaking things. But isn't it odd that we, we lack that clarity of what exactly is trying to, are we trying to accomplish here? I think that's deliberate, but that's just my take. I think this serves the power of, you know, the foreign uh, foreign policy establishment who know we need to force other nations to do what, what we want them to do. And I'll just come right out and tell you, I'm, I'm absolutely 100% skeptical that it has anything to do with defending the American people or defending their freedoms. Why? Because uh, the more we've sent our soldiers off to fight around the world and to drone people and you know, drone strike them and, and whatnot, yeah, the less free we are here at home. So something's not working. Fiona Harrigan says authorizations like the 2002 AUMF empower the president to take military action without the approval of Congress, which is the sole body allowed to declare war according to the Constitution. Congress hasn't formally declared war since World War II, but over the years it has passed laws that have given the president increasing amounts of discretion in military conduct with decreasing amounts of oversight. President Joe Biden voted in favor of the 2002 AUMF as a senator, but he's now endorsing its repeal. Quote, the administration supports the repeal of the 2002 AUMF as the United States has no ongoing military activities that rely solely on the 2002 AUMF as a domestic legal basis. Repeal of the 2002 AUMF, it says, would likely have minimal impact on current military operations. Fiona Harrigan says, as important as it is to rein in the president's military powers, the Biden administration statement shows that repealing the 2002 AUMF would be a largely symbolic gesture. If Biden hopes to make good on his promise to end forever wars, he's going to have to look beyond that 2002 AUMF. The measure passed one week after September 11th is a far more important framework to repeal. That measure authorizes the president to use all necessary and appropriate force against nations, organizations, or persons he determines were involved in the terrorist attacks. Now, presidents have capitalized on that obvious latitude, justifying 41 operations in 19 countries, thanks to generous interpretations of the AUMF's phrasing. I'm sorry, the 2001 AMF. So there have been succeeding ones, right? Sorry, I'm a little bit slow here. The 2002 AUMF, however, has been used mostly to bolster the 2001 AUMF in conducting military engagements. Since the Iraq war ended in 2011, it has not been the sole authorization behind any military operations. In fact, in 2014, the Obama administration named it as an alternative statutory basis for the U.S. campaign against the Islamic State in Iraq. The Trump administration also invoked it to justify its conflict with the Islamic State, but asserted authorization to address threats in Syria or elsewhere as well. So Fiona Harrigan says even if lawmakers vote to repeal the 2002 AUMF, there's still the question of, okay, what's going to take its place? The Biden administration stipulated its support of repealing the 2002 AUMF with a call to replace it with a narrow and specific framework appropriate to ensure that we can continue to protect Americans from terrorist threats. Now, Biden proved very early in his term he isn't opposed to continuing U.S. military operations in the Middle East. That combined with his wish to uh, forge a new authorization framework, maybe with more teeth than the 2002 AUMF, should worry opponents of U.S. military entanglement abroad. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, in announcing his support for the repeal effort, said the Senate would consider the bill sometime this year 
Next week, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will mark up a bill introduced by Senators Tim Kaine and Todd Young earlier this year that would repeal both the 2002 AUMF and the 1991 AUMF, which was passed to authorize military force during the Gulf War. As reasons Scott Shackford pointed out in March, it seems Biden still wants to be able to act on what the administration sees as threats without having to get the approval of Congress. Repealing the 2002 AUMF may be a welcome gesture after decades of executive overreach and waging war, but the devil is in the details. I'll have a link to Fiona Harrigan's article in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Please check it out for yourself and, uh, you know, feel free to share it with others. By the way, we are coming up fast on Independence Day, a day when we will, uh, at least most of us, will be uh, celebrating even if we don't stop to think about what exactly it is we're celebrating. But one of the things that I like to celebrate is what the founders referred to as self-evident truths. Got a great article here from Ken McManagle about, Ken, Ken about how liberty is among self-evident truths. And he says, many times over the years, people have demanded proof that liberty's better than the alternative. Sometimes the detail being questioned changes. Maybe it's the concept of human rights or ethics they're objecting to, but the argument is the same. They don't accept the superiority of liberty over whatever they'd prefer, so they demand proof. But he says, no matter what I say, with each response, they move the goalpost. With each objection, I'll be asked to prove something different. And he says, at some point, I realize the person doesn't understand because they don't want to understand. No amount of effort on my part will make a difference. I'm wasting my time. There's some reason they want to keep believing it's okay to harm others who are not violating anyone's life, liberty, or property. Now, he says, occasionally I ask questions to see if I can figure out their reason, but I never get a straight answer. Asking someone to prove liberty is better than the alternative is like asking someone to prove it's better not to be boiled alive. If you're willing to claim it might be better to be tortured and murdered, what can I say? Like it or not, he says, there are some things that are objectively true. Only politics or other superstitions can make someone dispute this. If it's not wrong to attack, to violate peaceful people who aren't violating anyone in any way or making a credible threat to do so, well, then society is an impossibility. Maybe that's okay with you. Ken McManigal says there's no way to pretend it's only wrong when you want it to be wrong, but not in other cases where you'd like it to be right. Inconsistency brings down this house of cards. There would be no such thing as theft, no such thing as self-defense. Slavery couldn't be wrong. Some people might like these ideas to be true. He says, I've been told rights aren't real because they're only a human construct. Fine. If this is the case, there could be no right to govern others. So we're back where we began. Now, he says, if you want to be enslaved, hey, I respect your choice. Maybe it's better for you. But I'm going to assume that it isn't, that you'd prefer your liberty and self-ownership to be respected and defended. And so Kent McManigal says, I'll act on this assumption until you explicitly tell me not to. He says, I'm sure liberty is always better, even if you won't accept the proof. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
All right, welcome back to the show. I Man, I feel like I have been on a little bit of a rant today. And in my defense, I've been under a bit of pressure here lately. You've heard me talk about the, the move that my family has undertaken. I, I used to believe that a move is a very simple thing. Why, you simply load up the moving truck, you go where you're going, and it's a done deal, and it's over with and done. And, you know, yes, it's a bit unpleasant while you're in the midst of it. But this is the first time that I have had to undertake a move that actually required endurance because it's taking weeks to make all the pieces come together. So getting packed up and moved out of my house, that was phase one. Had to put a bunch of stuff into storage because we didn't really have a place to land immediately. By a miracle, and I don't use that word lightly, uh, by a miracle we found a home and uh, just had to wait until a couple of days ago to start moving into it. So... The adventure continues. I'm getting things set up. I'm all, My studio is almost back together. Oh, I'm sorry to complain, but I'm just really, really tired of moving. So if it comes through like, you know, boy, he sounds a little bit irritable. Yeah, probably should increase uh, the fiber in my diet, take a nap and, and uh, you know, a chill pill here. But I... I also see some stuff going on. I'm, I'm still trying to keep track of you know current events and, and things that are happening to, to, to share with you what I think may be worthwhile information. But uh, like a lot of people, I'm juggling a few things these days. Saw a very interesting article on the uh, Mises Institute website. That's uh, Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S. The title is People Change Their Minds. That Doesn't Make Them Irrational. I thought this was a great article. This is from Frank Shostak. He says, according to a relatively new field of economics called behavioral economics, or BE, emotions play an important role in a person's, an individual's decision-making process. On this, the Nobel laureate Vernon Smith writes, people like to believe that good decision-making is a consequence of the use of reason and that any influence that the emotions might have is antithetical to good decisions. What is not appreciated by Mises and others who similarly rely on the primacy of reason is the theory, in the theory of choice is the constructive role that emotions play in human action. End quote. So, for example, if consumers become more optimistic regarding the future, then this is going to send an important message to businesses regarding investment decisions. According to BE followers, whether consumers are generally patient or impatient determines whether or not they are inclined to spend or save today. So behavioral economists emphasize the importance of personality. An emphatic person is regarded as more likely to make altruistic choices. Impulsive people are more likely to be impatient and not so good at saving up for their retirement. Venturesome people are more likely to take risks. They will be more likely to gamble. But individuals can ascertain the facts of reality by, but can individuals ascertain the facts of reality by emotion? Well, according to Ayn Rand, emotions are not the tools of cognition. She said, an emotion as such tells you nothing about reality beyond the fact that something makes you feel something. Without a ruthlessly honest commitment to introspection, to the conceptual identification of your inner states, you will not discover what you feel, what arouses the feeling, and whether your feeling is an appropriate response to the facts of reality or a mistaken response or a vicious illusion produced by years of self-deception. So now the author says, uh, various goods that support and enhance a man's life are discovered by reason. Once individuals have established that a particular tool is likely to enhance their life and well-being, individuals have to figure out how to produce it. 
The figuring out is done by means of reason and not by means of emotions. By means of reason, man can establish the relationship between things and their suitability to support man's life. Reason, therefore, is the man's mean of survival. Through various experiments, the practitioners of BE have concluded that people do not always behave rationally. So what the BE practitioners have discovered is, as has nothing to do with whether people are rational or not, it has to do with the flawed premise of popular economics that people's preferences are constant. The proposition that people are like machines that never change their minds. I mean, obviously people do change their minds, so it's not surprising that the behavior economics practitioners have discovered that real people's behavior systematically deviates from that of the human machine as depicted by the mainstream economics. Now, despite the criticism of mainstream economics, BE remains that retains rather the constant valuation scale of individuals in its analysis. So by introducing emotions, behavioral economics supposedly makes the human robot of mainstream economics more humane. But nevertheless, because of the constant valuation scale, it remains a human robot. He says, observe that psychology is an important element in behavioral and experimental economics on the ground that human action and psychology are supposedly interrelated disciplines. However, there's a distinct difference between economics and psychology. Psychology deals with the content of ends and values. Economics, however, starts with the premise that people are pursuing purposeful conduct. It does not deal with the particular content of various ends. And here he quotes Murray Rothbard, quote, A man's ends may be egoistic or altruistic, refined or vulgar. They may emphasize the enjoyment of material goods and comforts, or they may stress the ascetic life. Economics is not concerned with their content, and its laws apply regardless of the nature of these ends. Whereas psychology and ethics deal with the content of human ends, they ask, why does the man choose such and such ends, or what ends should men value? End quote. Now, the article goes on to talk about how economics deals with any given end and the formal implications of the fact that men have ends and utilize means to attain those ends. So, consequently, economics is a separate discipline from psychology. By introducing psychology into economics, one obliterates the generality of the economic theory. He says, contrary to mainstream thinking, both Ludwig von Mises and Rothbard held that valuations do not exist by themselves regardless of the things to be valued. On this, Rothbard wrote, there can be no valuation without things to be valued. Valuation is the outcome of the mind valuing things. It's a relation between mind and things. And from here, he goes into the Miesian framework of consumer choices. Gives a nice quote from Vernon Smith. Mises wants to claim that human action is consciously purposeful, but this is not a necessary condition for his system. Markets are out there doing their thing, whether or not the mainspring of human action involves self-aware, deliberative choice. And Vernon Smith says he vastly understates the operation of unconscious mental processes. Most of what we know we do not remember learning, nor is the learning process accessible to our conscious experience. Even important decision problems we face are processed by the brain below conscious accessibility. Yet to object that human action is conscious and purposeful is itself purposeful and conscious action. From here he goes into means, end, and consumer means, ends, and consumer choices, and the implications for public policy. 
It's a very interesting, and it's a, it's a scholarly article. I'm not going to tell you. This is a light, easy read. You'll need some time to digest it. There's a fair amount of meat on this bone. But I just like the, I like the idea that just because people change their minds or they change their preferences, doesn't mean they're crazy. doesn't mean they're a flip-flopper. Here's how he, he, Frank Shostak sums it up like this. He says, Casting doubt on the notion that reason is the main faculty that guides human actions. Behavioral economics, in contrast, emphasizes the importance of emotions as the key driving factor of human actions. By means of psychological analysis, the practitioners of behavioral economics have supposedly demonstrated that people's conduct is irrational. Consequently, the practitioners of behavioral economics may have unintentionally laid the foundations for the introduction of government controls to protect individuals from their own irrational behavior. For instance, wide fluctuations in financial markets can be attributed to irrational behavior, which can damage the economy. Hence, it will make a lot of sense to restrain this irrationality by a dosage of restraining regulations. I'm sure that's how a lot of public policy folks would see it. I'll have a link to this in the show notes and encourage you take a look at it. Um, you know, I, I love to see what economists are saying because I think that they do a pretty thorough job. At least the, the folks from the Austrian Economic School of Thought tend to do a better than average job of analyzing not only what is the preferred or the intended outcome of a particular policy or decision, but they also like to take a look at what are some of the unintended things that could happen as a result of this. And to me, this is, this is where wisdom is found. And it's not just found in you know economic think tanks and college classrooms. This can be found in how you conduct your affairs in your own life. And one final thought, too. Um, if you change your mind on something... You will always have my respect when a person says, hey, well, in light of new facts or in light of further truth, this is where my thinking has changed. That's not a bad thing. So consider it and, you know, take a look at the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. If you change your mind, that just means you found new truth. I can respect that in you. I hope that we can respect that in others. Let's give everybody some room to grow. This is The Brian Hyde Show.